Hello, this is Examiner Radio, the weekly radio show and podcast that covers news, politics, and all things Halifax. I'm Tim Bousquet, editor of the Halifax Examiner, which is available online at halifaxexaminer.ca. And as usual, in the studio is Examiner Radio producer Russell Gregg. Hello, Russell. Hello, Tim. How are you? Oh, man, this week has just been crazy. Yeah? Yeah? Why? Uh, well, just lots of different, you know, had to be here, had to be there, running around, and yesterday it kind of all came to a head, uh, and I didn't answer any emails, so if you're trying to get in touch with me, um, I don't know, you're try just gonna have to smoke wait. signals or some such. All right. How you been? Uh, good, good. Go Cubs. This is, this is a, this is a big thing. 71 years, and, uh, they play, uh, their first World Series game at Wrigley Field tonight. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm... I'm a happy guy. All right. Well, I'll, I'll find you. <laughs> Clean you up. Pick you up <laughs> off the street. This is episode 85 of Examiner Radio. And as always, you can listen to the show at CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax on Fridays at 4.30 or via the CKDU website, which is ckdu.ca. And you can also subscribe to iTunes or Stitcher or any other podcast aggregate and get Examiner Radio automatically downloaded to your device of choice each week. Just type Halifax Examiner in that platform's search engine and it'll be the first result. Today we'll be speaking with Bill Turpin. Bill is a longtime Halifax journalist. He was uh, the editor of the Daily, Daily News back in the day and went on to do some went to the dark side, did some communication <laughs> stuff, and has recently written a book called Max's Folly, which is sort of an homage to uh, journalism and, and a tale. It's a it's a work of fiction, um, but we'll have him in in just a bit to, to talk about that. Let's do a uh, week in review first, though. So uh, this week, teachers. Teachers. Voted uh, overwhelmingly. For an unspecified job action, which yeah. basically means they could strike as soon as uh, December 3rd. Uh, 96% of the teachers in the province uh, voted in favor. Of, of the ones that voted, yeah. Of, of uh, the ones that voted, and the ones that voted were 107%. Yeah, what, what that means <laughs> is uh, all, all full-time active teachers could vote, but also any of the... Uh, substitutes and so forth that happen to be uh, working that day as well can right. also vote. So that's how they got over 100%. Right. You know, maybe they should reframe how they're saying that. But uh, anyway, essentially all the, all teachers voted. Yeah. And uh, this is a, a, a damning hit on the McNeil government. Um, what do you what do you predict is going to happen in the next oh, I, four weeks? I don't like to make predictions, uh, especially about <laughs> the future. Right, uh, but uh, I don't know. It, it could be it, basically they've they've said to their their union executive, whatever action you feel like we need to take, uh, you go ahead and do that. That could range from a full on strike, walking out. I don't think we've ever had one in Nova Scotia mm. to a uh, work to rule strike, mm -hmm. meaning that they just follow the letter of the contract, and and that w it will shock people if they go down that road. How much uh, extra work teachers do beyond yep. what they're contracted for, or I guess they could do other things too, which I don't really know much about. I don't know. We'll see what happens. These are we're in uncharted territory, as they say. Yeah. So the the teachers union have have now rejected 
offers by the province. This is the third one that they've second they've, one, second one uh, yeah. that they've turned down. Uh, what are they asking for? Well, I mean, it's it's hard to say because what, what's happened twice now is the executive has chiseled out a, uh, a suggested contract, which they recommended to the union members. And in both cases, the union members said, no, we don't want that. Mm-hmm. You know, money is part of, the, part of the equation, as it should be, but it doesn't seem to be the uh, defining issue here. At least what I'm seeing publicly in the teachers I've spoken with privately, they all recognize that they're not going to get uh, big hefty raises, although they do want some raises, and they want uh, the continuation of, of some of the extras that have been kind of expected all along. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really what they want is respect. They are being piled on with, with extra paperwork, with all sorts of new uh, accounting systems, uh, 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 computer systems, and tracking students this way and that way. And it adds a lot of time to their day and takes away from their time in the classroom. And, and to no purpose, as they as they see it. Okay. So, so I mean, ever since the passage of um, Bill 148, um, a.k.a. the Public Services Sustainability Act, uh, which is just about a year old, they had put, uh, the government had pushed for um, the wage increases to be frozen for two years for most public sector workers. Um, now, a wage freeze in, in real terms is a, a pay cut. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, the McNeil government has taken a, a hard line on on public sector workers. Yeah. Um, is, I mean, do you think he'll he'll be the first to blink? Jeez, I, I really yeah. don't know. Um, I, I think that people, that, that the liberals are probably privately polling like crazy right now to see what the public attitude is. Right. Uh, and they'll probably base their decisions on that. You know, the teachers have kind of come out of nowhere a year ago teachers were seen as the most complacent government workforce right. you know yep. uh, not you know didn't like to make waves um, generally got along with whatever the the province put forward and the executive was kind of you know, the first time around went that that road and they were solidly uh, struck down they reformulated the executive and the same thing happened again uh, so suddenly you know mild-mannered teachers are the, are a political force to be reckoned with mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, I, I don't know where this is going. It, it, if they walk out, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I, I have a 10-year-old at home who's, who's heartbroken at the prospect of, of uh, a teacher strike. Um, I have one of those rare kids who just loves school and, and thrives in it. But it, it does seem sort of on the street that uh, public sympathy seems to lie with the teachers. Um, that's, that's no official poll, but, uh, certainly yeah, my it, feeling. It's hard to say, you know, I, I think parents are going to split two ways on this. Some, some are understand the issues and very much like their particular teachers, uh, uh, want and understand the stresses of the classroom and so forth. Uh, where others are, the thing that's going to rise to the top is, oh no, now I got to find out childcare arrangements yeah. and I got to, you know, and they'll blame the teachers. So I, I don't know what. I don't know. Okay. Uh, we, so starting in December, we may have a, a, a guest producer here on, uh, <laughs> here on Examiner Radio as uh, well, it's your Take d- Your Daughter to Work Day. Your daughter is uh, something else. Uh, we, we, should get her, <laughs> we should get her on the radio. We should. Yeah. We should. Um, let's move on really quickly. Who is Justin Brake and why should we care? Uh, Justin Brake is a reporter slash editor 
who you know he's got a long long history of reporting reported in haiti and defor and and uh, around canada always kind of as an independent reporter but doing solid work mm-hmm. and a few years ago he kind of helped revive something called the newfoundland and labrador independent which had been previously been a newspaper that kind of folded and he got it up and running again online uh, and he's the editor of that, and he's been covering pretty much single-handedly the indigenous protests at Muskrat Falls mm-hmm. in Labrador. So he was there, uh, I believe he was the only reporter on the ground, when a couple hundred uh, indigenous protesters stormed the construction site and occupied it. Yeah. And that was last weekend. And he he documented it, and he went on to the site and, and reported what was going on. Nowcor, which is the Crown Corporation that is in charge of this, or semi-crown, I guess, has petitioned the court f- for arrest warrants for uh, the protesters, and the, this is a court in Cornerbrook, so it's not, you know, in the Newfoundland Supreme Court. It's, right, it's, right. It, you know, and the court issued arrest warrants for them, including for Justin Brake. So, you know, I would say that the protesters were doing an act of civil disobedience and they knew that they were risking arrest mm-hmm. and, and that was perhaps the, the, the point of it, yep. you know, to yep. draw attention yep. to this. Uh, whereas Justin Brake is a reporter, a journalist, who is bringing this information to the public and for him to be threatened with arrests is uh, simply outrageous. So he hasn't been threatened with arrest. I mean, he's had a warrant issued. So well, he's I mean. been told to show up at the court on a certain date. Okay, and, yeah, uh, and there it stands. Okay, what what could come out of this? Well, hopefully it'll just be uh, dropped. I mean, this is very very much a parallel to the Amy Goodman situation down in the states, down right? in North Dakota. Yeah, yeah, she was the only reporter on the ground when when the um, con- the pipeline construction company sick dogs on protesters and she brought that news to the world and it it really blew up in the states and uh we got an analogous situation here where the only reporter on the ground you know is reporting on this situation there hasn't been that kind of violence but uh i fear that uh if journalists start getting arrested for simply reporting on on protests uh it's a real chilling effect yeah uh for the press uh, you know, you can think what you want of the protests and have whatever opinions about whether it's, you know, they have a, a cause or not. Uh, but a reporter is simply doing his or her job saying what's going on. And, and that's the basis of a free and open society, you know. Okay. It's, uh, yeah, it is it is uh, chilling. And I'm, I'm really hoping that, uh, you know, he'll come before the court and they'll simply drop it and recognize that, you know, there is freedom of the press. And uh, it, it, it uh, prompted some interesting debate on uh, on the Halifax Examiner website this week. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's a question we've all wrestled with uh, in this industry. You know, what is a journalist? You know, what constitutes a journalist? If you... If you're a blogger, are you a journalist? It well, there there are some gray areas, sure, yeah. but this isn't one of them. This is a, 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 a reporter with many years' experience uh, and recognition, been published in many publications, doing the job of a reporter. You know, there, there's just no there's no blurred line here. There's, he's solidly a reporter. Yeah. You know, we we can take up those borderline cases and some other 
you know, as they come up and, and debate them. But I think we do need a kind of broad understanding of what a reporter is. I, I, I would hope that I would fall in the camp of being a reporter, you know, um, even though I, I do a lot of uh, opinionated uh, op-eddy kind of stuff. But, uh, um, you know, I've done real reporting. When I was down in the States, for, for example, uh, there's lots of instances of this. So uh, I would I was a reporter covering fire zones, mm-hmm. you know, and and all I had to do is flash my my uh, press pass and and I could enter the scene of of uh, a wildland fire. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they knew what I was doing, and you know we're glad for it, you know, that I, I was out there telling the public what was going on uh, in in a, what was otherwise an exclusionary zone right here at Prov. Province House. We have uh, reporters who are credentialed to uh, access parts of Province House that the general public can't. Uh, that's not because they're special people or whatever, but just because we recognize the role of the press and in, in being able to convey information to the public. So they they should they should and do have increased access. Same sort of situation, I would argue, in, in a um, demonstration type situation. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break here on Examiner Radio. When we come back, we're going to speak with Bill Turpin, the longtime journalist and editor, and now the author of the brand new book, Max's Folly. We'll be back right after this. Okay, we're joined in the studio by Bill Turpin. Hi. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Oh, you bet. So I'm glad to be here. You're here for a couple different reasons. One, we, or at least I haven't had an extended talk with you before. I guess we've met once in in a bar. <laughs> we met once at Barely's. Uh, we had a mutual acquaintance there, but you were seemed to be in a hurry to go somewhere, even oh. though it was before... Uh, which you know, examiner. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I'm sorry. Uh, sorry about that. But uh, you also have written a, a new novel called Max's Folly. Correct. Yeah. Uh, and I really want to talk to you about that. But let's first just discuss your career. Well, tell us about yourself. Well, I've been a as an adult. I've been a journalist most of my life, and uh, even at the uh, age of 28, they were describing my career as checkered, <laughs> and uh, it's pretty much continued that way. My wife and I met at the Montreal Gazette. And then uh, 14 months later, oh, it was less than that. Maybe six months later, we'd moved to Manitoba to open a restaurant. Oh. So we figured we could do that because we had three pretty good seasons in this national park. So we figured, right, restaurant, good, we can do that. And then um, we thought, well, do we want to stay in Winnipeg? (coughs) Excuse me. So we thought, do we want to stay in Winnipeg? The winter's there. I don't know if you know that city. Uh, Pretty horrible. Yeah. So we decided no. Yeah. And so we got married and came to Halifax on our honeymoon and planned to stay here five years. So that was 1985. 
Okay, and, and um, that's a, a somewhat before my entry into Halifax, but you uh, uh, landed at the Daily News. Was that your first job here in town? Well, we we bought a restaurant here in town. Oh, you did? Yeah. You know, about, again, 14 months. That's the 14 months I was thinking of. That's how long it took that restaurant to separate us from our savings. And we started looking for work. And That's uh, what drives the economy, you know. Everyone takes their life savings and dumps it into the restaurants that fail. Right. Yeah. And, and they think they're going to be the uh, genial maitre d', yeah. uh, never breaking into a sweat, welcoming the, welcoming the regulars to the restaurant. But, of course, that's not the way it is. And, yeah. Uh, it does keep the economy going, all those losses. So one of us had to find work. My wife was, Lindsay, was probably better qualified than me. <laughs> and uh, so she wanted to look for a job at the Herald. They offered her a job in Yarmouth. And we weren't feeling that. Yeah. So I went to the Daily News. And um, <coughs> I got on as the wire editor. Just to give you some context yeah. of what the paper was like then. That was when uh, Challenger blew up, right, in 1985. Right. And for reasons I couldn't understand, the Daily News was running a picture the next morning of Discovery. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so um, you have a uh, – it sounds like the novel is loosely based on, on some parts of your life anyway, um, that experience of showing up at a paper that was poorly run or, or unfocused, let's say. Oh, definitely. I mean, all the advice I got from people was write what you know. So, and the other advice was take little grains of truth and then, contrary to what you're taught in journalism, um, don't uh, worry about the facts getting in the way of your story. <laughs> so I would build on that. And uh, so, yeah, that's where I said. And a friend of mine called it, um, called the book uh, many things, but one of them was a love letter to the Daily News. Yeah. Yeah. And there's some truth to that. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to ask you in a bit to to read a passage actually that's related to that. But uh, so the the novel is loosely based on your life, but obviously, Very they're, loosely, they're, yeah, they're, yeah um, it's fiction. Yeah. Uh, you've never gone to South America as a reporter. I went to South America as a bum, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Touring around. But the character that goes to South America in the novel um, reminded me of an old mentor of mine uh, from California, a guy named George Thurlow was. The uh, first American journalist shot in El Salvador. <laughs> he, he once told me, "If you ever get shot, don't make a mistake. I just stay down. Don't stand up because <laughs> they'll shoot you again." Um, I think that's always good <laughs> advice. Yeah, yeah um, but uh, so that resonated with yeah. me. That that whole story you have in there, you know, it, it kind of rang true. Uh, you ended up as an editor. Yeah, when I left the Daily News, I was the uh, the editor or the editor in chief. So why did you leave the Daily News? Around about, I think it was 1998-99, the paper was purchased by Canwest Global, which was a Winnipeg-based corporation. And there was, it's hard to describe, there was a national controversy over the way they were handling their papers. Uh-huh. Canada had a long tradition of chain ownership owned by families, but they had a, sort of a noblesse oblige, yeah. and their motto was... Um, let the editors decide the content of the paper. And that was, by and large, honored for years and years and years. The new owners did not see it that way. So the, the, in the novel, in Max's Folly, there's yeah. a sort of buffoonish publisher. I, is that loosely based on conflicts you had in the newsroom? Oh, yeah. That, without question, that's a compilation or 
uh, a mashup, people would say, of uh, a lot of conflicts I had in that newsroom and with uh, sort of owners. But I must say, not, not the publisher at the time I left the paper. He was yeah. actually a pretty good guy. Yeah. yeah. So you went into PR, communication? Yeah, uh, worse. I went into PR for government. Oh, geez. So it was like... Talk about the dark side. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the as bad as it gets. The darkest corner of the dark side. But it was an eye-opener, I'll say that, because, of course, you see everything. Every story has really does have two sides. What do you do now? I am uh, retired, but like a lot of retired guys, I'm doing consulting here and there. You said an inspiring gadfly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I was inspired by a health examiner. I thought, no, there's a, there's a gadfly operation. That's why I want to be someday. <laughs> Well, great. Uh, let me just jump in, and if people are tuning in now, say that uh, I'm with Bill Turpin, a longtime uh, journalist and, and PR person who has written a new novel called Max's Folly. Let's talk about the book, your first piece of fiction. And it, it is, uh, for uh, I mean, especially for a first novel, it's engaging and, and exciting, and uh, you have a great, great tale there. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad uh, you I don't that. know how to get into this other than it's an interesting conceit, an, an, an older person who has been a journalist and PR person, yeah. kind of looking back at his life through um, a semi-dementia. or well, he, he would never say that. Right. I think that's an important point. Right. He calls it time jumping. Yeah. In his view, what's happening to him is that he's losing his uh, lifelong time jumping skills. Time, ability to travel in time yeah. and people are misinterpreting that as a memory problem yeah, yeah. It, it's an interesting conceit because it, it it allows you to tell this kind of convoluted story in a way that uh, pulls the different elements together there's so much in it uh, one thing i wanted to ask you about before i forget is one theme in the in uh, a small theme and kind of almost inside is is battles with uh unions oh yeah uh, just curious where that came from. What, what was? Well, it, don't assume I'm anti-union, right? In principle, but um, I've not been a fan for quite a while of how they conduct themselves in practice. Uh, that crystallized with the Nova Scotia Government Employees Union. I have to say, because um, uh -huh. I was in a management position in the government, and well, I don't want to get into a political fight with or into a fight with the NSGEU but that soured me but to tell you the truth watching how the uh, collective bargaining agreement impeded just about all the players involved yeah you know um, specific to newsrooms uh, you know we've all known the um, the people who shouldn't be there yeah right uh, and uh, I, I, I guess there's can be some union protection given those people that maybe you know you kind of wish there was a way to push them out but otherwise i don't know who stands up for the people in the newsroom we're seeing that play out at the chronicle herald right now right right and i'm not i want to make it clear actually i'm not condemning yeah the union at the herald uh, both those parties are in a very difficult position in my view they're really standing on quicksand both of them and i hope they can work it out yeah, I, I'm not hopeful at all for that. Was was the Daily Union, uh, Daily News unionized? No, was not yeah, unionized. I didn't think so. So, yeah. so, so you introduced that element as just a fictional to bring in some conflict, right? Yeah, that's exactly yeah. it. Just yeah. and to advance um, Max's character a bit, yeah, and the character of his publisher, and it also relates back to an experienced character had in Montreal 
which I think comes later in the book. Yeah, right, right. So uh, just to tie in, sort of ties things together. The broad sweep of the book is really, um, it's a love letter about, about journalism, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's one passage, I, I was hoping that I could get you to read it. It's about two or three pages long, and let me find it. Do you mind? Not at all. To set up the scene, you, uh, the, your character, Max, is the editor at this uh, upstart Halifax Daily, and he's surveying the newsroom. Yeah. And I, at this point, he's beginning to sense that his days there might be numbered. So what he's doing is uh, something I actually did in life, is I made a habit of taking a mental picture of that newsroom because I knew I was never going to experience anything like it again. Yeah. So that's the grain of truth behind this, right. this scene. It's a lovely scene, right? but go, go on. Yeah, okay. Um, Max leans against the half-height cubicle walls of City Desk. Watching the intense chaos that signifies the transition from dayside to nightside. Sports has arrived and has begun organizing the night's work. Soon they will be loudly demanding to know why the city editor has reassigned a photographer from one of their stories. There will be an acerbic exchange to iron out the priorities. The entertainment editor, as always, is cajoling the music and theater critic to get her story filed by deadline. This is a process that will be handed off later to the Indonesian who will continue demanding copy from her until 11 p.m. Max, the entertainment editor, and the Indonesian meet frequently to crack down on her, but they never succeed. Max suspects there's a good deal of what he thinks of as cross-pollination occurring in the newsroom, but none of his staff will let him in on it when there's a new affair taking place. However, you can usually tell by observing increases in production and creativity. There's a rumor hotly denied about their cartoonist and a general assignment reporter. The rumor is persistent because the colleagues, their colleagues want it to be true. Besides romance, the other factor guaranteed to boost the productivity from one end of the newsroom to the other is a juicy homicide. The police scanner blares all day at top city desk. No one notices it until a note of tension creeps into one of the voices crackling back and forth. When that happens, the background noise in the newsroom drops off and heads pop up, like prairie dogs sniffing the air. Usually it's nothing, but every now and then they'll hear something that cries havoc. Crime reporter, where is it? City editor, I don't fucking know. Why don't you make a call and find out? Crime reporter, I want a shooter. City editor, you'll get a shooter when I know what the fuck is going on. Hold on. They're looking for a white van. A lesbian abducted her lover and her child. Crime reporter. A lesbian kidnapping? Shooter. Are they movie lesbians or regular looking? See the editor. Golly, I don't think the cops have a radio code for movie lesbians. Crime reporter. Sarcasm is unbecoming to you. Great. And it goes on and on. But uh, again, it's just a, a real love for the newsroom. Yeah. Myself and the people I was lucky enough to work with at the Daily News, we still get together yeah. uh, three or four times a year, and we all regard it as one of the very best times of our working lives. It was quite a ride at that paper. And, and in this novel, you, ca- you capture the, the various stages of the technology and where the newsrooms are, have been and are, and are going. I wonder what you think of the, si- the overall journalistic situation now. 
Well, you know, throughout my career here, I watched the resources devoted to uh, news gathering and editing dwindle steadily. Throughout my career, I watched the resources devoted to journalism dwindle steadily. It's like a death of a thousand cuts. Yeah. One person here, one person there, one position not filled. Now, you can see uh, the result of that. Uh, the coverage is not there. At the height of the, uh, I think we could fairly call a media war in Halifax, which would be early to mid-90s, there was a daily news who's the Herald Hammer and Tong daily. CBC, CTV were going at it again. Mm-hmm. Hammer and Tong, uh, C100, TJCH, and to some extent CFDR all had rocking newsrooms. Mm-hmm. So at about 4.30 in the afternoon, CBC had a, forca- uh, a cast, they still have it at 4.30. Mm-hmm. There would be a clump of people gathered around every afternoon at 4.30 to hear that cast, yeah. right? Then we'd flip to the other stations over the next hour or so. We had two TVs set up, we'd monitor everyone's broadcasts. It was that competitive. Yeah. And a lot of news got covered. Now it's, um, well, I'm tempted to say it's, d- it's a desert, but I look around, I see a lot of decent blogs. Halifax yeah. um, Examiner is becoming a little more than a blog, I would say. Oh, yeah. That's very, enc- <laughs> hope so. <laughs> that's very encouraging to see. Um, the coast does interesting stuff, but we need more of it. Yeah. You know, there are some good signs. I'm not completely depressed yeah. by it. On the other hand, I don't understand if everyone is so short-staffed in their newsrooms, why they're covering a story about the removal of cheese from nachos at uh, a hockey rink. I'm not really getting that. Well, it's it's all about web hits now. When I moved here in 2004, I think there was something, and this was after the heyday, right? But I think there was something like 300 people working in newsrooms in Halifax. It would surprise me now if there's 80. Yeah. yeah. Is that right? I didn't know. I'd g- that's, that's really uh, dismal. Yeah. But anyway, you have Max's Folly. Uh, how, how are things going with it? Or, or it turns out it's very hard to tell. I, was, I dropped in a bookmark on the way down here. Uh-huh. So, uh, I should note that it's in the literature section at Bookmark. That is, I have noted that as well. Yes. And I'm next to Mark Twain. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, I dropped there bar today, so there's only one copy left. I take that as a good sign. Yeah. But as it is with newspapers, to tell how you're doing, you have to wait for the returns. Right. And the book industry, it seems, moves at a glacial pace. I mean, here's a guy, what I'm accustomed to is you write it or you edit it, and then you see it probably about 12 hours later at the most. Yeah. Right. Well, I turned this book into my publisher a year ago, May. Yeah. So it's just been excruciating. So now I'm waiting for the returns from the bookstores to come in. He just laughs at me when I ask about that. So, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, we'll have a link to uh, to the book on, on our website at halifaxexaminer.ca, and uh, it's available at all fine bookstores. Uh, I'm sure Bookmark will get more in after that one is sold. But uh, congratulations. Thank you very much. I, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it, was, oh. it, was, it was a great read. That's the most gratifying thing. Yeah. By the way, is to hear people say things like that. And thanks for coming in today. Oh, glad to do it. Great. I've been speaking with Bill Turpin, who is the author of Max's Folly. And again, we'll have a link to that on our website. We'll come back right after this.
That's a wrap for this week's Examiner Radio, the weekly podcast and radio show produced by the Halifax Examiner. I'm Tim Buske. And I'm Russell Grant. As always, we'd love to know what you think. If you have comments on what you've heard or story suggestions for future episodes, please send us an email to podcast at halifaxexaminer.ca. Until next week, your phrase is, Go Cubs! (laughs) Ha, ha, ha.